With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom. Simply visit www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate to make a difference today. You're on Reality Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Oh, good news. We've got Jonathan Ailing. Ah, I'm going to have to check that I was pronouncing his name right when I get him on here. Jonathan Ailing's coming on from the Free Speech Union, a favourite with listeners, but a special favourite of mine. He's flying in for a 25-minute visit, and he and I are going to have a bit of a head-to-head, I fear. And to be honest, Jonathan's probably right. But I'm going to give my best shot. Jonathan, good morning. Nice to see you again, Rodney. Oh, I would never believe that we would need a free speech union here in New Zealand, and that if we did have one, that it would be so busy. No, that's right. Um, Unfortunately, the very places that have benefited the most from free speech and have been exemplars of free speech, primarily those uh, in the Anglosphere, countries like New Zealand, Canada, the UK, they are the ones that are uh, experiencing free speech erosion uh, the most in our current context. And so that's why we need all Kiwis to stand up and push back, I think. Absolutely. Now, Ailing, am I pronouncing it correctly? Yes, that's correct. Where does it come from? It's a Welsh name. Ah, so you're Welsh through to Africa. <laughs> my parents were humanitarian workers in, in Africa, yes, but um, but but my ancestors come from Wales, yeah. Ah, do you feel the pull of being Welsh? <laughs> uh, uh, yes, on occasion. I've, I've not been to Wales, but I would, I would thoroughly appreciate a chance to visit there. Ah, well, you get to see some great road signs. Now, before we get into our head-banging moment, you send out a – I love getting your communications. I get so many communications from organizations that I just, oh, I'll read this later. But I always stop what I'm doing and read yours, which is a testament to how well they're written, but also how interestingly they're written and what interesting stories they are. Your communication uh, this morning that I got had two stories. Lucy Rogers – no, has I got that right? That's correct, yeah. And then I didn't catch your name. I just read the story. The IRD lady. Tell woman us about by the name – her name is Christine Massoff. Yeah, so these are two cases that we've taken on. We find ourselves um, quite busy in our in our cases at the moment. Cases is one of the streams that the Free Speech Union works on. So we have four streams, cases, campaigns, content, and coaching. And cases are the individual work that we take on to represent uh, individuals who have, who have faced discrimination, uh, perhaps by their employer or, or another um, context like that for speaking out. Lucy Rogers uh, is a name perhaps some of your listeners are familiar with. Uh, She was uh, protesting at a pro-Palestinian rally, uh, counter-protesting, I should say, uh, in November last year. And she did so by holding up a sign which said, selective condemnation of genocide is evil. And she stood there silently on the side of of Auckland uh, Queen Street and police came up to her and told her that unless she moved on and took down her sign, she would be arrested. Uh, They didn't know that Lucy is a criminal barrister herself and not one to be pushed around. And so she (laughs) told them that uh, that was not going to happen. And so they took her sign, they they tore it in, uh, 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 they tore it up in front of her, and then they placed her uh, under arrest and detained her for um, about ninety minutes in a police car, never charging her with actually any crime. She was then released, and 
so incensed was she by this experience that she made sure uh, that she reached out to us and, and expressed the, the severity of the situation. And we're going to be laying a high court complaint on her behalf. We think we have a very strong case of wrongful arrest and abuse of her protest and speech rights. And, and, and the concerning thing, Rodney, in this story is that she was not the only person arrested uh, in this manner on on that same day during that same protest. So we understand as many as possibly six individuals were arrested on that day in a very similar fashion. Uh, some were charged, some others were not. Uh, but we see a little bit more of a cultural modus operandi emerging here for police using uh, powers to detain individuals but not charge them uh, in order to to keep the peace at a protest. And, and you might understand, you might have some sympathy for that for a moment. The question I have, though, is why is it the individual who is standing there, perhaps silently holding a sign or expressing uh, their, their opinion legally, why are they the ones being arrested? If police are fearful that a mob is about to turn on this individual, then, then arrest the people that are threatening violent, illegal activity. And I think this is so consistent with the way we approach many of these issues nowadays. I'm not going to say they're not complex. They need a, they need a nuanced, sophisticated approach. But we're putting the, the weight of uh, the burden of action on the wrong people. And actually, if someone is threatening to uh, to be so incensed by another's speech that they're going to take violent action, police need to stand up against them, put them under arrest, hold them to the law. Well, it's an interesting point, and I don't want to drag into our next argument that we're going to have, but it sort of relates to it in a funny way, because Miss Rogers would never deny the pro-Palestinian people their right to protest, would she? No, no, absolutely. But we now have a big chunk of society who protest and deny our right to protest. That's right, yep. Which comes to a point that I hope to make so scintillating, you'll fold up your tent and say, Rodney, I'm in awe. No. Onto the eye. That's a shocking story. And, of course, what it means is that this wasn't a, a, a spur-of-the-moment police action because she was not actually doing anything confrontational. This is the protocol that the police have, that if someone's actually counter-protesting, arrest them because you might upset the mob, which That's is right. the opposite and of what the police should be doing. I'll, I'll give you a scoop here, Rodney. You didn't oh, know that we you, love scoops. We're going to be getting. Such, We've, I've never had a scoop in my life. Such, such hot media material. But just today, we can't confirm this yet because it hasn't been done formally through the court yet. But we understand that police have said that they will be dropping charges against another individual, a man by the name of Daniel Maxwell, who was one of the cases that was. Uh, that was, uh, or, or he was also arrested on that same day as Lucy was. And 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 this is just their. Uh, the, the way they're going about it now. The, the, he was charged. They run him through a court appearance and some initial pleadings and that kind of thing. And then right before they actually have to make a case for why he should be arrested, they withdraw the charges, making their point that we can actually do what I want. And, and there's no recourse to that. They're wasting time. They're wasting public defenders' money. And uh, we said three months ago, I'll bet my bottom dollar, the police will withdraw charges on this. There's no way they'll take this to court. And then that's exactly what they did. It's a, it's a, it's a waste of, of uh, public funds and, and resources that are already scarce. But but more importantly, it, it, it shows a disregard that I'm increasingly concerned is emerging in our police. 
Not only for the fact that, yes, I guess we probably should have to protect protest rights and free speech rights, but that actually protest rights and free speech rights form a foundation on which liberal societies are built. Mm. And without without free speech in particular, uh, the role of police is going to become a lot harder because without free speech, people become far more violent. If you can't stand up and freely express your thoughts, if you find yourself uh, compelled into silence and suppressed, before long, it becomes too much. And people become far more violent in that case because they will insist on being able to express themselves in one form or another. So, you know, I'm grateful for the relationship that we have with Andrew Costa, the police commissioner, and the opportunity we've had to engage with his senior leadership team. And our continual advice for them is it's much easier for your jobs to believe in free speech than to try and suppress it. Well, and you would have thought it was a constitutional thing. Tell me the IRD story. The IRD case is a a situation of a woman called Christine Massoff, who works for our Inland Revenue Department. Uh, IRD has taken it upon themselves to place period products in all bathrooms uh, at IRD premises because they believe, you know, individuals of of all sorts and stripes may menstruate. And so... uh, So this is like a... Cover your ears if you're sensitive. This is like a tampon dispenser in the men's toilets. I would imagine so. I'd also imagine reciprocals of 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 dirty okay. products. And because uh, when I'll, you're a man, you're always looking for these things, right? Uh, Rodney, I'll defer to others on this. I'm not much of an expert <laughs> in that regard, so I haven't I haven't qualified exactly what this entailed. But I, that that's what I understand was the case. Christine Massoff is a gender critical feminist, and uh, and and found it ironic uh, that that period products would now be appearing in men's bathrooms. And so uh, went on what's called IR Women's Forum. It's an internal chat forum for women working at IRD specifically to discuss issues relating to their work and their uh, experiences there. And she said, quite sarcastically, wonderful that they're finally going to put period products in all our bathrooms. Just isn't it interesting that now men can menstruate, suddenly uh, these businesses are, are, are stomping up to, to pay for them to have free period products. I mean, it's very funny. And it's also quite a uh, pungent point. I think, it, it, I mean, putting aside the gender critical aspect of it, her assertion perhaps that men actually can't menstruate, the, the feminist argument there, well, actually, it's only once men are associated to the space that, that government starts putting funding into it. I think that's a very interesting point she's making. Uh, her colleagues didn't agree, though. They were grossly offended. And uh, and and so um, uh, she was, was warned and given a letter of expectations that said, if you think anyone may be upset or offended by a comment that you're going to make, your job is to self-censor. And you've been warned now, if you don't do that in the future... Uh, we will pursue further disciplinary charges. And and this is just simply unacceptable. Her manager went so far as to say that because IRD have endorsed a policy of gender inclusivity, the organization now has taken a position on the transgender question. And it is therefore the role of every employee of IRD to either speak in accordance with that policy or to not speak at all. And that's rubbish. And Rodney, it, it, it just has no space in it. We we can't give this the time of day. Our internal revenue agency has no need of a policy 
on gender inclusivity. It doesn't need to have a policy on 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 the the, the dynamical role of transgenderism in our society. These are important questions. It doesn't relate to our tax take though. And so to require a, a a policy professional or an administration professional to succumb to a compelled position on an issue like this is the opposite of what it means to live in a free and liberal society. And we are quite confident, as we are with the Lucy Rogers case, that this is an opportunity to set a strong precedent in this case, that employers, and in Lucy's case, police, cannot operate with the disregard for protests and speech rights that, that have, have unfortunately become increasingly common. Well, good for you and good for the speech union. And you're not just a great cause, but you're prosecuting it with a, a, a wonderful alacrity and to great effect. So thank you for that. Uh, by the way, it sort of says something about the IRD that they're going to internally police such a contentious political topic. It also suggests that us gender critical theorists might be more subject to audit. You know what I mean? Because where does it end? Where does it end when you're the most powerful government department and the police? I, I think that's a very good point, Rodney. Look, I want to be clear. I, I, I have no reason to think at this stage that is the case. But no. this is absolutely where this line of thinking and these lines of belief lead. At that point, individuals should be targeted because they are the wrong kind of thinkers in our society. Mm. And wrong think must be crushed out. And so, uh, absolutely, where does this end? I shudder to think. Now, onto the topic that we're going to bash heads about and try and get an understanding of the difference. So I'm a free speech absolutist. I think you should be able to say and think anything that you like, with that exception. Now, there are what I'd call torts in this. So the classic example, I think it was Justice Holmes pointed out, you can't be in a crowded theatre and maliciously sh- shout fire and cause a stampede and people get killed. Uh, you can't stand out someone's someone's house and say, let's attack Rodney Hyde's house and kill him. Uh, that's the limit. But it's got to be very close and tight uh, to be that speech that's limited. You can't be saying, uh, you can happily say in such a society, all capitalists should be strung up and killed. You can say that because it's not proximal to a particular person that's being exactly attacked right. and killed. Now, Mongrel mob patches, should they be allowed as a matter of free speech? Yes, for two reasons. Yeah, part of me wants to say yes, but I fall on the side of saying no. Jonathan, you go. Rodney, free speech does two things in our society. One is very admirable, laudable, and normative, and the other is very pragmatic. The first is that free speech allows stimulating conversations between reasonable individuals like ourselves to go back and forth, to allow the best ideas to win, to to let the marketplace of ideas function. It allows the development of knowledge. It allows the freedom of conscience. It allows us to be true to our inner workings and to grow together. I often say that free speech is the foundation human right. It is more important than freedom of conscience because actually you, you can't, we, we, as humans, we don't hold beliefs in isolation. We hold beliefs 
in society together with others we form our beliefs in that way and so unless we have the opportunity to do debate and form beliefs our freedom of conscience actually will will ultimately not be worth much that is one reason why free speech matters and i don't think that argument applies to this because gangs aren't reasonable they're peddlers of misery and violence. They absolutely deserve the full force of the law to be brought against their illegal activities. And they have no interest in engaging in a reasonable conversation around whether or not they should be dealing meth or whether domestic violence abuse is an issue. That's not going to apply in this case. However, on a far more pragmatic level, there's a second reason why free speech matters. And that it stops us from killing each other and it helps us know who our enemy is. Enemy or opponent, I, I, I would probably more for, uh, be inclined to say opponent, actually. Uh, if, if I'm driving down the road, I want to know if I've got a gang member driving beside me on his bike. If I cut him off and I accidentally, you know, if he accidentally dings my bumper, uh, I'm not going to get out there and start abusing him. I'm probably going to carry myself with a little bit more caution. Why? Yes, because of the uh, the violence and the criminality that is incumbent with gang activity. And so I want to be really clear that we are very sympathetic to communities that live with gangs in their midst. However, taking patches away won't make them safer. It actually stands to make them less safe because they don't know who the individuals that are inclined towards violence and criminal criminality in their midst are. The second point is also that this is a full it falls errand of a policy. There is no way to actually effectively ban patches. If it's not a patch, it'll be a particular handkerchief. If it's not a particular handkerchief, it'll be a particular type of pen. If it's not, at what point do we stop gangs from being able to associate with each other in any sort of commonality, which they will then use to demarcate themselves as of a particular type? This will this policy will only compound grievance. Uh, while I I hesitate to say I have too much sympathy for gangs, I'm sure there are a variety of reasons that in individuals end up in gangs. And I do have sympathy for some individuals in some gangs who, who for whom life has never presented any other opportunities than to be part of that world. And th that is only a portion. There are others who have chosen to be out there and, and, and they deserved the full force of the law again. But what I would say is, they already have the perception that the man is against them, that, that, that the, the world is seeking to oppose them. And this will only validate that belief further. I sat down with, uh, with Act Minister Nicole McKee earlier this week. She's Minister for Courts and, and was very interested in our concerns around this policy. And I said that uh, uh, an individual who accompanied with me in that meeting is Dane Giroux, who I think you know, Rodney, uh, a, a council member of the Free Speech Union. He grew up in, in South Auckland as an ethnic minority and saw the attraction that exists to, uh, to join gangs, not least because the, the individuals who are hard done by, who are being oppressed, who the world is against, but they're making a go of it. And I worry that this policy will, will make people less safe, will make violence more common, and will actually do nothing to address the issues of isolation and vulnerability that gang members feel that they are um, associated with. Very good. Uh, by the way, have you read a book? Well, you should read a book called, I think it's called Into the Red or In the Red, and it's by a former Mongol mob member, whose name I forget, who goes around New Zealand selling his book. And it's a book of his life. And you understand perfectly how he ended up into a gang. 
absolutely a combination of sexual abuse and racism and uh, putting in jail for really misdemeanors and going on to a hard life. But it describes gang life. Look, it might be very flattering if you're an, uh, uh, to be an outlaw, but it's a great read to understand what gang life is all about. No holes barred. Mm-hmm. Now, here's my counterposition. Wonderful. This started by uh, Jonathan, and I sort of changed my mind while writing a reply text. He asked me, would I still support the ga- a ban on gang patches? And I started off by saying no, because apparently when I voted in 2009, I think I supported Michael Laws in his push to ban gang patches from the streets of Wanganui. A decision that was later overruled by the High Court. Yes, I think I did. I can't remember. But uh, if Jonathan says I did, then I did. But I said, I agree with you on the futility of banning gang patches, because I'll just find some other device And in a way, it'll increase their notoriety. However, I actually believe we should stomp on the gangs. And it goes like this. Something deep within me, which initially I couldn't intellectualize or present an argument for, says to me that it's very wrong to allow young thuggish men to dress up in an intimidatory fashion and walk down the street intimidating everyone they walk past, so much so that I would cross the street. I would hate to be in a McDonald's or a bar, don't go to bars, but if I did, with my children and have these gangsters and outlaws turn up and sit beside us and their bad language, and their poor behavior. However, in having all these thoughts, I think that's just not right. That can't be allowed. I say, oh, well, it's a free country, you know, free speech. Um, They're not actually breaking the law. They're just, you know, there's nothing that the police can do because they actually haven't done anything wrong. They've not stolen a burger yet. But many, many years ago, I can remember it was in 1986, I think. I read to Karl Popper's Open Society and Its Enemies, which is one of the most life-changing and significant books I've read. And he wrote it, interestingly, in Christchurch, New Zealand, and during the war. And he had a footnote, and it was The Paradox of Tolerance. And it's a tricky one, because there's no hard and fast rule. But it's this concept that you live in a tolerant society where you say have free speech, you allow free speech. But what do you do to those who oppose free speech and would use violence to shut you down? Now, Sir Carl Papa was wise enough to say you have to be careful about this because obviously if there's no threat to you, you just ignore it, and they t- you expose them. You show them up for who they are, and free speech wins. But this was a book written against fascism and the rise of Nazism, and how in this book he explained it actually was not something that just 
came about out of nothing, that it had had a long philosophical tradition amongst our intellectual leaders, and that this had taken this had taken um, root within the university system, and was a consequence of bad philosophies and bad ideas. And he said that a tolerant society had to reserve itself the right to vigorously and violently put down intolerance because potentially, if left unchecked, it could destroy a tolerant society. It has to put down tolerance of intolerance of a particular kind. And you said it the first time, Rodney, but you didn't yes. say it the second time. Intolerance okay, of a violence nature. Yes, I'm happy to stick by and, that. And, and 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 that's why up until that point you you were characterizing Popper very correctly. And and some of your listeners may be aware, uh Popper is endlessly mischaracterized in his paradox of tolerance. So I think I think uh, if if you are getting your news off Twitter, which is an unfortunate state to be in, but not a very uncommon one, uh, you might think that that Karl Popper's intolerant uh, paradox of tolerance was was his general thesis of the entire book. As no, it was a footnote. As you correctly pointed out, it was simply a footnote, but it has taken on such um, weight because it is an argument that is very effectively used against things like free speech. Because, as you say, the, these are balances. Um, you you use the word free speech uh, absolutist, and, and and I find that an interesting self identification. I don't I don't even know if I would call myself a free speech. No, I don't think you are. But 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 what I would suggest is that well. A, a question or a challenge I would have for you is, is is what ideology or what way of thinking has been effectively suppressed through censorship. Now, now actions, there are many actions that do not occur because of laws and, 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 and the monopoly of, of violence that the state legitimately has. But that we, we 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 don't operate that way as humans with regards to our thoughts. If we try and suppress perspectives and thoughts and expression, which is really what a gang patch is, we actually find they flourish more and more. And I don't know if there are many examples. I I'm not familiar with many of of areas where suppression has actually effectively over a medium to long term succeeded in suppressing certain ideas or expression. In the short term, of course it works. But before long, you'll find that you push it into the ground and like seed, it bubbles up more than you realized. And and I I think there's a contradiction, Rodney. And and, and you, you, you referred several times to this being an argument in the introduction. Well, look, I'm the enjoying contrary, this, Jonathan, because I, I have, you're starting to struggle. I can feel it. <laughs> I, I, have no, I have no interest in arguing with you because I have a lot of sympathy for this perspective. But I think there's a contra contradiction in your claims. Yes. Be be because what I hear you saying is that uh, it won't work, but it's the right thing to do. No, no, not at all. Will will this policy work for the stated aims of making individuals less vulnerable to real violence as opposed to just a sentiment of feeling vulnerable to the violence, less vulnerable to real violence and actual consequences for criminal uh, accomplices? You make all good points. And the particularly good point is the physical violence and intimidation. So I have, because if you don't, 
put the physical violence in there. Then you are in the crowd that we are opposed to, That's which right. is those that would say, I'm at the IRD. And what... Uh, and Christine sarcasm makes me feel violent. Absolutely. And I feel the same way as if the Mongol mob had just walked into our offices, right? And I thoroughly agree with that point. And that's why it's a tough point to draw. It's a very tough point to draw. I also agree with you that banging, banning the gang patches is neither here nor there. Uh, it doesn't deal with the underlying problem and all the rest of it. But if you're living in a community where the mongrel mob or a gang inhabit, that community can be living in fear and can be intimidated. Why? Because of the very nature of the gang. Uh, specifically because at the moment in New Zealand, they are getting away with criminal activity. That, that well, is getting away with, but their whole reason to it is, is violent, antisocial, criminal behaviour. Sure. That's their purpose. Every... every Every time they they outwork that raison d'etre. You know what? We're going to end up agreeing. Because what I would say, forget the gang patch. Go after those gangs. Chase them down. Hassle them. Hound them out of existence. And do so every time they step out of line. If they drop a piece of paper on the sidewalk, arrest them. I, I, Throw the I, book at them. And and and, that's and a, I that, wouldn't that's... I wouldn't expect me if I dropped the piece of paper to be hounded and arrested. But I actually think we have to go after the gangs, harass and hand. And I believe, by the way, that the police that we don't need laws to do this. We have all the laws that are ne right. necessary. We have all the ability that necessary. But what's the problem? The police would rather hound our friend Lucy. on the Lucy on the side of the street holding up a sign. They'd rather arrest her than arrest someone from the Mongol mob. I think you're absolutely right. Rodney, I was privileged to uh, sit down with the police leadership team at the police leadership conference uh, last year. And as I discussed with a, a number of them informally, some of the laws that the Labour government at the time that was proposing to put through Parliament, they said, we already have so many laws we can't enforce. Mm. I, I, I think many, uh, and, and as a former politician, I'm sure you can relate to this, what Mark Mitchell is doing here is not putting forward an effective policy that he thinks is going to transform the face of criminality in New Zealand and make communities feel that they are genuinely much more safer. What he is doing is putting a political response out there to say, we hear you and we're going to do something about it. And I can't mm. judge him at one level for that. He is trying to communicate in a political context through a policy that won't work. And if it wasn't violating a basic civil liberty like free speech, I would be rather indifferent about it. New Zealanders do have a right to feel safe in their own homes. They do have a right to feel safe in their own communities. And far too many of them do not exist in that context. So as you say, use the laws we have and absolutely take it to them. I couldn't agree and more. Let me be, let me let me suggest a word of caution 
I wouldn't hesitate. I wouldn't presume to tell you how to do your job or, or how to suck eggs. I'll tell you why I wouldn't presume to do that. You're doing such a fantastic job. Uh, you're doing a fantastic job. But I worry because you're a very intellectual person and very committed to the principles. But here we are as Kiwis, and we don't know all the arguments. We haven't read Karl Popper or John Stuart Mill. We haven't read Plato's Republic. But I'm living in a little community where those bastard mongrel mob bastards, twice, walk down the street intimidating everyone and using standover tactics, actually depriving people of their livelihood, scaring the bejesus out of people going about their business, and actually extorting just by their presence. Now, it's a tricky one because if you stand up and say, oh, well, they should be allowed to wear their gang patches, it sort of sounds like these guys think that's okay. You actually have to explain, no, that behaviour isn't okay because they are denying you, at the very least, your freedom of speech, actually, your freedom of movement, your freedom to go about your business. Their mere presence does that. And so there's this great point you have to make almost, and that's why I said in my text, no, I wouldn't support the banning of the patch, but I'd support going after those gangs and absolutely destroying them. Get the IRD off putting the period products in the men's toilets and get them on to auditing every day, every gang in the country, like they do to plumbers, builders, shopkeepers. Go after them, and they won't. And there's two possibilities for why they won't. There's a logical one, which is you're a police officer. What would you rather do? Issue a speeding ticket to Jonathan and Rodney or knock on the door of the gang headquarters? Well, I know what I'd rather do. But there's a second one. There's so much money and power tied up in these gangs, you just wonder what the corruption level is. I think it's high. And so all I'm doing is suggesting to you, and so, yeah, the gang patches aren't here or there. It's the whole thing. Do we agree? I, I, I think we do, sir. And, and I accept that this presents a... A real challenge, and not not because Kiwis are stupid, and not because they're malicious, but because actually we all make decisions out of a very emotional places quite often. And when mm. you feel afraid, that's an incredibly uh, incredible motivator. I I do think though that as we seek to communicate to our supporters why this matters, why this matters to all of us, illustrations help as well. And I think you know, there's two of us in this conversation. We've probably got at least three definition of what a gang is if we thought yes. about it. And my concern is that before long, with it under a different government in a different context that could be not so far away, um, a woman wearing a Speak Up For Woman t-shirt 
that could be interpreted as a gang patch. Um, you know, the idea of a, of a group coordinating together to legitimize malicious speech called the Free Speech Union, wearing uh, emblems associated with them, that could be a gang patch. What does a gang patch mean? Who is a gang? Is, is a religious community that wears a religious emblem, could that be considered a gang patch. There isn't a statutory definition of gang. There is a list of gangs, but that's a political process process where um, parliamentarians decide which groups sits on the gang register. And so my concern is that while today we may think it's legitimate to silence uh, individuals who are peddling misery and who are dealing in violence, tomorrow the other side may have those same powers. And do we want them to subjugate their views on us in that way as well? And that's why we, oh, we concur. push into this. I concur. And that's why it's important not to have a law that targets gangs, but to have a policy that targets gangs and to be very, very mindful that such is the state of play in New Zealand, and these are, this is why principles are important, such as the state of play in New Zealand is, is that you're absolutely right. If we could, if we can have a policy that say these characters in this town are going to be targeted by the police and basically run out of business in town because of their criminal behaviour, and we're going to hit them for everything: tax evasion, tax avoidance, littering, uh, public nuisance, all the rest of it. Well, you and I know that that same tactic could be, and in fact is being used in Western countries, and indeed is being used here in New Zealand against individuals, that we can be harassed and we can be targeted. Because you and I, we probably break a hundred laws a day, unwittingly. Right? And so if we were being, someone was looking over our shoulder, they could come at us. But what I'd suggest is proper leadership at a political level Proper leadership at the level of the police, they know a bloody gang when they see one. Now, we can say, oh, well, what you do for the mongrel mob today could be turned on the Rotary Club tomorrow. And you say, yeah, it could be. But you'd like to think that in a free society, you wouldn't let it. And the way and we preserve like that free society is through every day going out and making the cultural fight for why these values matter to everyone. Yes, else. but you have to make it matter in a way, Jonathan, where you take the people with you. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why you have to be very careful on this matter of gangs and you have to have a principled position. Just like you're not a free speech absolutist, like me, because I tend to the extremes, and you say there are limits to free speech, you, I think you've got to have a little cautionary thing there about these gangs because everyday Kiwis know they're wrong and they are wrong. And you, 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 a gang can turn a community into a prison camp. That's wrong. I think that we've done pretty good. I love your work, Jonathan. I love the debate about the... Uh, paradox of tolerance and again i make the uh, interesting analogy where you have these pro-palestinians happy to protest demanding their right to protest but not allowing anyone else to
That's right. Hypocrisy stinks, doesn't it? Well, that's, and like in a funny way, you're getting to the point where, no, I'm tolerant, but not that much. Jonathan, wonderful to hear from you. That was Jonathan Ayling from the Free Speech Union. What a great guy. You've got no idea of the work this man does or the union does, and you heard two great stories behind the scenes preserving our most fundamental right before private property, before freedom of conscience, is the ability just to talk and speak out and speak your mind. It was such a hard-won principle, such a hard-fought. Even in the birth of the United States of America, it was hard to get freedom of religion and freedom of speech embedded into the Constitution. They did it, and here we are, 2024, having to have a union to stand up for us. You're on Rally Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in to RCR Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, just like what you're listening to. Either way, we want to hear from you. Get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you. So connect with us today.